Well, good morning. Uh, good morning, Deer Creek. Um, my name is J.P. Watson. I'm one of the pastors here and the church plant, a church planting resident here. So uh, mine and my family's ultimate goal is that we would plant a church uh, out of Deer Creek. We're looking in the South Denver area inside of the city, and it's my privilege uh, to get to be with you this morning and to get to uh, look at God's Word uh, together. We've been doing this series, this short series on, on marriage and family and thinking about family discipleship and, and, and looking at those relationships. And so this morning, we're going to carry on through that, and we're going to take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the first seven uh, verses of 1 Corinthians 13. Dwayne mentioned this passage last week as we took a look at Ephesians 5, and I figured this week what we could do is just kind of double down a little bit on some of the stuff that Dwayne uh, kind of skirted over the surface for us uh, a little bit last week. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Um, it should be on the screen behind me as well, too. But anyway, read this for us, and then we'll pray. We'll ask God to help us understand uh, his word. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, for us this morning. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And I want to skip down to verse 13 to kind of summarize this. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's uh, pray together. Ask God to help us understand his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you want to commune with us, to communicate with us, and that you do that through your word. You have given us your word to know who we are, to know who you are, and to know how we relate to you. And you've given us your word to show us your one and only Son, our Savior, Jesus. And so we pray this morning that as we come to this passage, to this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, that you would make Jesus big in our hearts and big in our lives, that you would show us our sin, show us our need for our Savior. Holy Spirit, we know that you are the one who does this work, that you have to act on us. And so we pray that you would do that this morning and you would give us a fresh sense of your grace. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'd venture to say that, that most of us in here have heard the passage that I just read. Uh, even if you've not really had much experience in the church or been in the church, if you've ever been to a wedding, this is typically one of the passages that is read um, at, a, at a wedding. So we, we probably all have some familiarity as we come to this passage, and for good reason. Because the Apostle Paul, what he is doing, the man who wrote this letter, is he is expounding for us what love looks like. What love looks like in our relationships with one another. What love looks like in marriage relationships, in parenting relationships, in friendships. What love looks like. But in order to really understand 
what Paul is getting at here, we actually have to dig into the background of what's going on at this church, this church here in, in Corinth. And so here's a few things that I would just want to highlight for us that we've actually seen, if you were to begin reading at the beginning of this letter, that you would have seen as you come into 1 Corinthians 13. And what we've seen is a number of things that this church places a very high value on. You know, every church and every culture has things that it places a really high value on. Here's some of the things that the church at Corinth placed a high value on. Gifting, knowledge, and presentation. And let me dig down a little bit there. Gifting. In 1 Corinthians 12, the, the chapter just before this one, what Paul has done is he's actually just finished showing the church here that they care more about the gifts of the Spirit than they do the giver of those gifts. They care more about the gifts of the Spirit than they do the God who has given those gifts. So gifting is something that they valued. Knowledge is something that they valued as well too. In chapter 8 of this letter, Paul has warned the church at Corinth that knowledge puffs up, but that love builds up. So knowledge was something that was of great value inside of this church. Presentation was also something of great value. The first two chapters of this letter that Paul writes to this church, Paul basically acknowledges that the church preferred other pastors than Paul because they spoke better than he did. They were more eloquent. They sounded better than he did. And so this church at Corinth has this value system of gifting, knowledge, and presentation. Doesn't that sound a lot like the world that we live in? Does that sound like your job? I mean, are you valued at your job for your gifts, for your knowledge, for the way that you come across, the way that you present yourself? Do you carry that with you into your home? Do you carry that with you into your marriage, into your parenting? And these are definitely things that the church is susceptible to. Over the course of the last handful of years, a number of what people would call Christian celebrities who have gifting and knowledge and presentation, it turns out, have been very morally bankrupt. And that hurts the witness of the church significantly. And on that front, you want to pray about something for your pastors? Pray for your pastors that the Lord would make us humble. <laughs> that the Lord would, would, would make us not trust in our gifting and our knowledge and our presentation, but in the blood of Jesus. What Paul is showing us here in 1 Corinthians 13 is that there's actually something that is far more important than gifting and knowledge and presentation, and that is love. Love is far more important than those things. The kind of love that goes deep down below the surface and fights to make us better people. And what Paul's doing is he's showing us the love of Jesus. That's the big takeaway this morning, that this passage in 1 Corinthians 13 is all about the love of of Jesus. And what I want us to do together is to think together about how this love of Jesus applies in our relationships, what that looks like. So what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to have two points to this passage. We're going to look at relationships our way, and then we're going to look at relationships Jesus's way. So our way and the Jesus way. 
Verses 1 through 3, Paul sort of lays out for us what it looks like for us to engage in our relationships in our way. And, the, and we can really boil that down to, to one word. We have this tendency and this temptation to engage in our relationships through flaunting. You know that word? Like you, you want to flaunt something, you want everybody to see what it is that you're bringing to the table. In verse 1, Paul tells us that they're struggling with flaunting their gifts. In the previous chapter, he's just laid out how the church was, was flaunting different spiritual gifts. And what he does is he doubles down on that here, that they are flaunting gifts that make a very visual impact that you can see and be impressed by. We're not exactly sure what the specifics of tongues are here that he mentions. But what we do know is that they had a significant capacity to draw attention. And Paul is accusing them of exercising this gifts just so that others would see them doing it. So they were flaunting gifts. Verse 2, Paul says, you're also flaunting knowledge. Corinth prioritized knowledge, knowing the deep things of life. And Paul is showing us that there were people in the church that were sort of doing this kind of like the one-up sort of game with their intellect, saying, well, I know more than you do. I understand more. I even have more faith than anyone else. Take a look at me. You ever been in those kinds of situations where it's like, oh, I got I, I a I one-up. I got to show you that I actually know just a little bit more than you do. And in verse 3, we see that they were flaunting sacrifice. They were flaunting what they were doing for others. There was a spirit of giving so that others would see that sacrifice and pat them on the back. They would see, oh, you're giving all of this away. Oh, man, how wonderful of you, how awesome of you. As I read this passage, it sort of brought to mind a little bit, oddly enough, my experience in seminary, which, is, which probably doesn't sound very encouraging to you, that your pastors who are being trained in seminaries. Um, but here's what's true is that, is that in seminary, it, it, it's like this incubator where you, you're being asked to bring to the table your knowledge, your, your, your gifting, all of those things. We also see this in the broader culture as well, too. I mean, you think about celebrity culture. Celebrity culture is all about, look at what I am doing. Even the things that, 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 that celebrities are doing for good, for the benefit of humanity, for the benefit of communities, in a sense, it's so that you and I will see that they are doing those things and think well of them. And here's what's true. We've all been on the receiving end of this, haven't we? We can all think of times when we've been made to feel like we have no gifts, that we have no talents, that we don't have any knowledge because we're in the presence of someone who's making much of their gifts, of their talents, of their knowledge. I know that I've been on the receiving end of flaunting sacrifice where I had better appreciate and acknowledge what it is that's being done for me. It makes us feel unworthy doesn't it? It makes us feel ashamed, like we're not enough. It hurts. And many of us probably have very deep wounds in being treated like this in relationships, manipulated, made to feel small, made to feel like we are nothing apart from this person who is in front of us. 
if we slow down, take a little bit closer look at these verses, we also notice something that Paul is doing here. You see, Paul is actually not letting anyone off of the hook of being guilty for any of these things. Every pronoun that he uses in these verses is first-person singular. Paul is literally implicating himself. He's literally saying, I've done these things as well too. I have flaunted my gifting, my knowledge, my sacrifice. And if I'm honest with myself, in seminary, I sure made, made, worked very hard for my fellow students to look at what I was doing, to look at how hard I was working, to look at how much time I was putting in, how much I was sacrificing. And if I'm honest with myself, I certainly carried that home too. Carrie needed to know how much I was giving up for our family for this. Carrie had to know how much I was gifted, how, how much knowledge I had. And if I'm honest, I still struggle with this. I get still carries with me. It carries with me my parenting. It carries with me in my marriage. And Paul states all of this not to say that gifts and knowledge and sacrifice are wrong or bad within themselves, but if they are not exercised in love, they are literally nothing. Did you notice that in the first three verses? Paul continues to come back to that. They are nothing. It doesn't matter how many gifts you have. It doesn't matter how much you know. It doesn't matter how much money you have and you're giving it away. It doesn't matter how much of your time you are sacrificing. If all of that is exercised just to make much of ourselves, then it is nothing. And yet, we're all guilty of this. <laughs> so, so now what? What now? If, we're all, if we all sit here and we're, we're guilty of this, we're all guilty of having flaunted our gifting and our knowledge and our sacrifice and all those things, now what? Well, Paul has an answer for us. He says, look, that's the way you're tempted to look at relationships. That's your way. That's our way. But here's what I want to show you. I want to show you Jesus' way of looking at relationships. And Jesus' way is the way of love. These are the things that we're familiar with in verses 4 through 7. The way of love. Paul shows us the way of love. And he does that by telling us what love is not. And then by what love is. So let's take a look at what love is not. Paul says love is not envious. It's not envious. It doesn't wish that it was something other than what it is. Love is happy to receive God's good gifts and use them to strengthen others and to give glory to God. It's not looking to get something else other than what God has given. Love is not boastful. Love isn't about self. Love isn't about making much of self. Love isn't about drawing attention to self and making sure that everybody knows that you look good and that you know stuff, and that you have gifts, and you have talents, and look at what you're doing. It's not boastful. Love is not arrogant. Love doesn't think of itself 
as better than others. It's not interested in getting the credit. Love gives away the credit. Love doesn't care about the credit. Love's not arrogant. Love doesn't look at itself as better. No. Love's not rude. Love does not treat others as if it is their job to serve me. It's not rude. It doesn't look at others and think that this person is here just to serve my ego, to serve my purposes, to serve my agenda. I can't tell you how many times I've gone into a restaurant and sat down at a table and watched how people treat servers like that. And I've done it myself too. But love's not like that. Jesus' way is not like that. Jesus' way is not rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not a bulldozer. Love is not there to just ram right over you and you just need to get on board and get along with everything. Love does not say my way or the highway. It doesn't insist on its own way. Love is not irritable. Love's not always annoyed with everything. We just spent the last couple of days moving from our rental into our new house. And let me tell you, I'd be willing to bet that my children and my wife would tell you that dad's posture is pretty much annoyed the entire time. And Jesus comes along and he says, that's not what love is, John Paul. That's not what love is, JP. That's not, that's, that's not how you're supposed to treat your wife. That's not how you're supposed to treat your children. Love's not irritable. Love is not resentful. Love doesn't hold grudges and focus on what it doesn't have. It's not resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. This is a really big one. Because what Paul is saying is that love doesn't say no big deal to sin. Love actually engages sin. Love actually cares enough that when it sees sin and destruction, it comes to it in gentleness and with care and points it out. We often strive to do this with our children when, 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 we, when we see something that's going on where they're destroying themselves and doing something that's destructive and we try to say to them, we love you too much not to say something about this. And that applies just as much at the age of 38 as it did to me when I was eight. Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It actually hits sin head on. But you know what it doesn't do either? It doesn't also look to play the gotcha game of relishing catching someone in sin so that we can feel more holy than others. Love isn't always on the lookout for sin so that I can say, hey, look, you're doing that, and so that I can make myself feel like I'm better. It doesn't say no big deal to sin, but it also doesn't play the gotcha game either. Love is. Paul spells that out for us. He says love is patient. 
Love is kind. Love is true. Love bears, believes, hopes, and endures. Love is patient. I know that often when I think about patience, what I think patience is, is making it through something without losing my temper or getting frustrated. That that's what patience is. When I'm trying to help teach my children how to learn how to tie their shoes. And if I can make it through that event without losing my temper or getting annoyed, then boy, I have exercised patience. But that's not really patience. That's not what Paul means here. You see, because the focus is still on me. (laughs) How I'm reacting, what I am doing, that I have been Patient, and somehow it's on what I can accomplish. And oh, great, you made it through it without losing your temper, without getting annoyed. That's not patience. The idea that Paul is getting at here with patience is a genuine desire to be with someone as they process life and what is happening around them. Patience is to genuinely enjoy being with someone as you help them learn the process of tying their shoes. Because you know that that's going to build confidence. And it's going to show your children that practice and hard work are worth giving time to because you grow and you mature. It's wanting to be with people in the midst of life and be willing to process the hardships of life. The sufferings, the difficulties, and to sit there with people. And to know that oftentimes we don't have an answer for that. Not in the moment, but what we do have is we have a living hope in Jesus. Love is patient. Love is kind. There's no mistake that Paul puts patience and kindness together. Because we are to relate to people from the standpoint of understanding that others have to strive to be patient with us also. I can't tell you how often I think, okay, I'm having to be patient with this out here, but I never consider the fact that, you know what? You're not the easiest guy to get along with either, JP. People got to be patient with you too. And if you haven't come to grips with that, then there's a good chance that you're relating to others in all the ways that Paul says love is not. You see, as Jesus works patience into us, we grow in considering the reality that we all have to go through our own processes. We all have to come to our own levels of understanding and that we would want others to relate to us kindly. And in that, we take the same posture towards others. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is truth. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. This means that love desires to see the gospel work in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our brokenness, and come to a deeper understanding of the work of Christ as he is redeeming us in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. It doesn't ignore sin. It doesn't play gotcha with it either. When we come to other people and we feel like we see something that is sinful that is going on, that is hurting them, we had better come to people with gentleness and care and not harshness. 
Because at the end of the day, what our desire is, is for each of us, for both of us, to grow into a deeper understanding of our own sinfulness and our own need for Jesus and what he has done on the cross for us. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is true. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things and endures all things. Love shoulders burdens together. Love believes that God is at work, that God always goes before us, that God is always the one who is pursuing us and changing us. Love hopes in Jesus, in what he has done in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Love endures. It's lasting, and it's like a fine wine. It gets better and richer with age. We read this way of Jesus here in verses 4 through 7, the way of love. And the truth is is we're confronted with the reality that there are still things that Jesus is changing in us and things that need to be changed as well too. Because I'm sure we've all had moments of genuine patience and kindness, no doubt. But we've all had moments where we are just trying to get through it without losing our temper and getting annoyed. (laughs) We've all had moments where we have lost it, where we have not acted kindly. I often say when, uh, when, when Carrie and I get to do premarital counseling with people that marriage uh, teaches you about how selfish you are and parenting teaches you about how angry you are. (laughs) When you start parenting, you got anger. You didn't even know existed down there. It just, it just wells up, you know? Like, you can get so angry at a four-month-old who won't go to sleep. It's crazy. And Paul says Jesus is changing those things in us. Jesus is actually working in us. He's working kindness in us. He's working patience into us. But we all still struggle with this as well, too. I still struggle with holding grudges. Holding things over people's heads. Holding things over Carrie's head, over my children's head. I often wonder if my children think that they just annoy me all the time. There have been so many instances where I have insisted on my way. That my way is the only way. Numerous times that I have bulldozed in friendships, in parenting, in marriage... And I often wonder, is Carrie just left figuring out how to navigate my proclivities and my thoughtlessness all the time? I've definitely harbored desires for all of the credit and that people would notice me and what I bring to the table. Maybe you're here this morning and you are considering Jesus and who Jesus is. And you're considering the church Maybe that's you. Maybe you're not exactly sure where you land on all of this stuff. Here's a question that I kind of have for you. Are, are you. are you tired of being valued only for what you produce? Are you, are you exhausted with being valued with, with only from what you bring to the equation? Uh, the, only from the standpoint of your gifting and your knowledge and your presentation? Is that you this morning? Because if that's you, here's what I want you to know. Jesus is not concerned about those things. 
Jesus actually enters into your life and says, you are valued because you're made in my image and because the love of my Father is on you. I've given myself for you. So if you're here this morning and you're considering that, consider what it looks like for you to join your life with Jesus and to let go of being valued by what you bring to the table. Let go of being valued by what you produce. And for those of us who are striving to follow Jesus, we need to hear the same thing. Let go. Let go of being valued by what you bring to the table. Let go of being valued by what you produce. But here's the thing. If we think that this passage is ultimately about us and how we are living up to this love list that Paul puts here, then we've actually missed the point of the passage. See, because remember, Paul is showing us that this passage is all about the love of Jesus. You see, Jesus is the way of love. Verses 1 through 3, the tongues of angels and men. Jesus is the word from heaven made flesh and dwelling among us. And yet he remains silent in love on the cross instead of flaunting his gifts. Jesus is our prophet. He knows and understands all of the mysteries of everything ever throughout all of time. He had the kind of faith that raised people from the dead, but he used none of it to flaunt himself. Instead, he gives us faith as a gift, the kind of gift that gives us life and love instead of the nothing of flaunting ourselves. Jesus gives himself as our one and only sacrifice to pay for our sin, that he would rejoice over us and bring us into God's family, that we would have life. Jesus gave himself for us, not so that we would see that he is flaunting himself, but to save us, to be a literal savior, not to make us savable, but to actually save us. Verses four through six, Jesus alone is always and only patient, kind, and truthful. Jesus alone perfectly sits with us as we process life and says, I'm here with you. I have not left you. I never will. My kindness leads you to repentance. The truth of my death and resurrection gives you forgiveness and life. Jesus sits with us and says, what a joy it is to watch you grow in my love for you. Do you believe that? Do we believe that? Do we believe that that's how Jesus looks at us? Or do we think that he's just constantly disappointed with us? Jesus looks at us and says, the smile of my father is upon you and I will be gracious to you. Jesus doesn't just love us, he likes us. He wants to be with us, he never resents us. Jesus is never annoyed by us and he laid down his rights and took up the responsibility of going to the cross and it's on the cross that we see Jesus bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things. 
The prophet Isaiah tells us that surely Jesus bore our sin. Jesus believed the Father's plan and his love for him and for us. Jesus' hope was rooted in God's love. He endured the cross that we would know and experience the incorruptible love of God. And what Jesus is doing is he is at work forming that same love into us. So as we think about what do our relationships look like? What do our marriages look like? What does our parenting look like? What does our friendships look like? The question that I have is, is Jesus the one who is shaping and forming those things? Or are you still trying to strive to be valued by what you bring to the table? In this passage, the Apostle Paul is confronting us and staring us straight in the face with the one who loved us and gave himself for us, Jesus, so that we might have life and have it abundantly. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us Jesus and Jesus that you willingly came and laid down your life for us because you love us. And Father, you gave us Jesus because you love us, not because you saw anything that was incredible in us or you saw anything that we were going to produce, but just out of your sheer love for us, you gave us Jesus. And Jesus, you come to us and say, find your worth and your identity and your value in me and what I have done for you. Holy Spirit, we pray this morning that you would work those truths deeper and deeper into us, whether for the first time or the umpteenth time. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.